Hello and welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. I'm Howard Kaplan. This on-air podcast features attorneys from Myrick O'Connell, a full-service law firm with offices in Worcester, Westboro, and Boston. Today's guest is attorney and partner David Fine. Dave represents clients in the construction industry, including commercial, institutional, and residential owners and developers, general contractors, construction managers, specialty subcontractors, suppliers, and manufacturers, and also chairs the firm's construction law group. You can learn how David and his colleagues at Myrick O'Connell can assist you with your business and personal legal needs by visiting myrickoconnell.com. I want to let you know that we're recording this podcast in the midst of the coronavirus or COVID-19 crisis. So today, Dave will explain how this pandemic has affected construction projects and the industry generally. Dave Fine, I want to thank you so much for joining us on On Air with Myrick O'Connell. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. What is the state of the law currently for construction activity in Massachusetts, and what is happening with construction projects? So the state of the law is a bit of a moving target, and it continues to move even up to uh, and including today, uh, April 17. And this all started, obviously, with the governor's order in uh, at the end of March, March 23, that closed most business in the Commonwealth, except for certain specified essential businesses. And construction made the list. Construction was originally uh, pretty much all construction work was on the list of essential services in the governor's original order, which is COVID-19 order number 13. So that was March 23. There was some confusion over which projects were intended to be on that list and which weren't. So two days later, on March 25, the governor's legal office actually issued a formal guidance specific to the construction industry that uh, was a few pages long and went into some detail as far as explaining why all, essentially, again, all construction work would be deemed to be essential and therefore exempt from the shutdown, including both pu- uh, public and private work. Along with that, the state also issued very detailed safety practices so that there were probably a four-page uh, document that was prepared by the state, a couple of state agencies responsible for overseeing construction in the, in the Commonwealth. It ran through uh, all the protocols that need to be in place in order for construction to continue on. So, for example, zero tolerance for sick workers, prevention protocols, practices, the need for wash stations. So, all that came out on March 25. Then, less than a week later, that order was revised to significantly reduce the types of projects that were uh, able to continue on. So on March 31, a a revision of the order was issued, which effectively removed all private commercial construction from the list of essential services. So March 31 comes, and now the types of projects which are able to continue on across the state are really only public projects, so public infrastructure, schools, colleges, facilities, airports, so on and so forth, and housing or residential projects. And then, of course, all of what you'd, what you'd characterize as emergency work, utility work, water, gas, electrical, that, that sort of work. But it really eliminated most private commercial construction statewide. Then, less than a week later, so now we're into the first week or two of April, 
another revision comes out, fine-tunes the, the safety guidelines and really gets into more detail as far as responsibilities of contractors where work is continuing on to identify particular safety officers. Um, on certain projects, the owner now has lead responsibility to oversee compliance and enforcement, which uh, you know opened up a whole new uh, world of questions for owners that now had this brand new responsibility. And the new guidance in the beginning of April empowered cities and towns to enforce this. So you've got sort of a moving target and an evolution of how the state was addressing and, and, and handling which types of projects are able to continue. And where that stands now remains the same. Most public work is, on, is able to continue as long as they comply with these, with these safety protocols. Most residential and housing work is able to continue, and most private commercial work is shut down. So that's all from the state, but that has to be reviewed in conjunction with the various cities and towns that are doing it their own way. The big one, the big example is Boston and, and also Cambridge. The cities of Boston and Cambridge issued complete shutdowns, so notwithstanding that this state was allowing certain work to continue. Uh, the state of this in Boston right now is that all work, public, private, housing, whatever type or kind, is and remains shut down. And that's leading to some issues as far as enforcement, uh, mixed messaging, and so forth. To say the least, usually under the normal principles of law, the feds control the states in terms of law states control municipalities. So what we have here is we've got municipalities making their own rules that in so many ways are contra to the state's rules. Did I have that right? <laughs> yeah, that's correct. And in fact, it was it was highlighted back at the end of March when within hours after this guidance came out from the governor's legal office confirming that all construction at that point was on the essential list, quote unquote. Right. Uh, the mayor of Boston uh, issued public notice saying we are still shut down, notwithstanding what the state is saying. The health and safety of the citizens of Boston are paramount and so forth, and that was all over the papers. Suffice it to say, there's sort of a lack of uniformity. Um, I think all parties and all you know, at the state and or municipal level would agree that the safe, safety and health is paramount. But obviously there are sort of competing factions that have the ears of the folks making the decisions at these levels. So it would seem that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, that the advice that you're giving to your clients, if they are construction contractors, subcontractors, really anybody in any organization in construction is, the threshold question is, where is this taking place? Because that would control your response? Yeah, and most of the decisions are actually being taken out of the hands of the contractors and the trade contractors and other vendors who are working on these projects. Decisions in the first instance are really coming from the project owners, and it's the owners that are determining, you know, A, are we shut down by order of government? Right. And that makes it easier. Well, not easier as far as a decision to stop the work. Or B, if we're not shut down by government order, do we need to shut down voluntarily? In other words, are the impacts so great, are the risks to the safety of our workers so great that we we need to we need to take action to voluntarily shut down or suspend the project. So that's a lot of the advice that we're giving, at least as it pertains to owners, is owners who are in that position of um, you know either public or quasi-public 
organizations that maybe can continue uh, with the work or universities or others who might be interpreted to be on that list of essential services, A, do we continue? And if we do continue, what's that going to look like? So what are you actually seeing on a day-to-day basis in terms of projects continuing? The impacts are everywhere, right? So the, the, the two basic pillars of construction, uh, if you will, are, are labor and materials. Those are the two pillars of construction. Labor to do and install the work, and, and that, that labor is, is, is installing the materials, and that ultimately creates your deliverable, whatever it is, the building, the, the facility, so forth. Right. On the labor side, you've got several issues. Uh, you know, workers are refusing to show. Um, unions, uh, a lot of the trade unions, have issued uh, orders that they are pulling their men. Uh, for example, uh, approximately a week ago, the, the Building Trade Council, which, is, which represents several of the building trade unions and centralized in one organization, issued a letter statewide saying that effective as of such and such date, all, we are pulling all of our men from all projects due to safety concerns. So that obviously reverberated through all of the projects that were continuing on and able to continue on. I mean, if they were shut down, that's one thing. But to the extent the project was continuing on at that time, obviously if the union can, is no longer allowing their, their labor supply to go on site, that's going to create all kinds of issues. But that's an evolving thing. In fact, just, just as of the last 24 hours or so, word came out from one of the unions, the carpenters, the local carpenters union, that they are looking at reinstating their labor forces effective next week as long as certain safety protocols are in place. So this is really a moving target. But, you know, as you can imagine, if you don't have the labor you don't, you can't get the work done. So that, and it's going to impact sort of every facet of every project. Doesn't matter what the context. And then on the material side, um, you know, also that you're seeing significant impacts. Kind of depends on where you're sourcing the materials from. For example, if your materials are coming from China or, or abroad, you're going to run into uh, issues with getting those materials. And then where you can get them, obviously the pricing is going to be significantly higher in places. So you're seeing shortages and you're seeing delays across the board. Our material supplier, our, our millwork uh, clients, for example, are having trouble getting uh, finding materials. The fabrication centers where these are where the materials are being turned into the final product that they are usable for the project. They're being fabricated is the term of art. Those are either shut down or they don't have the manpower or they have to observe safety distancing so the efficiency is much less. So I'd say where the projects are shut down, the impact is more definitive, it's more clear, but even where they're ongoing, we're seeing much less efficiency, we're seeing delays in the schedules, and we're seeing increases in the costs. All of that is sort of yet to bear itself out, but we're seeing it all definitively and we're seeing it all happening in real time. Just from a brass tax, no pun intended on construction issues, but uh, just from a brass tax issues, Dave, I was thinking, hmm, social distancing, keeping six feet away from somebody else, that's, that's pretty doable in an office. But on a construction site, when you're about maybe, oh, 60 floors, or well, that, that would be a really big construction project. But you know, if you're on, say, the fifth floor, and you have to be six feet away, and it's kind of a matter of life and death, hmm, do I go this way, and then I end up falling off. Basically, six feet away from other workers, that's, that's a challenge in construction. It's just an observation. It, it is a challenge. And, and, and actually, what we're seeing is it's really variable, right? So 
the example you gave, if you're if you're if a building is enclosed and you're doing finish work or putting you know installing HVAC in tight spaces or electrical in tight spaces, you're working in and around other trade subcontractors. Yes, it can be really difficult to adhere to the safety distancing protocols. But construction work, ground up construction, or in, and even in certain renovation projects, it can be really variable. And a lot of times there's work being done where it's not that difficult to adhere to those protocols. If you're doing excavation work or, or cement work or other outdoor work, or if there's one or two trades who are doing some finish work or punch list work, and there are, there are lots of other examples. There are certain aspects of the work where it's going to be inherently easier to comply with those protocols. And what we're also advising our, our clients is not all of the work takes place on the construction site. So just because you're, you're shut down and, and prohibited from accessing the site doesn't mean that all of the work has to come to a standstill. And that's part of the decision that these project teams have to make, hopefully collaboratively, right? So representatives from all different sides, from the owners, from the architects, from the contractors need to figure out what work can continue on, even if we are blocked from accessing the site. Uh, there's all kinds of what we call value, value engineering. So the Parties can work on improving the design depending on what phase they're in of their project. They can work on improving aspects of the work. They can work on what we call submittals, where their different subcontractors are reviewing the instructions that they've received from the architect and, and, and sending back either questions or more detail regarding drawings and plans for their particular scope. Uh, of work and those, that process can all continue on. So there's a lot of work that either office work or I'll call other work that can move a project forward, albeit much more slowly and probably less efficiently, but forward nonetheless. This is actually a fascinating topic to me. It affects everybody. It does. Construction it does. projects permeate yeah. every part of our culture, every part of our lives, and it fuels in large part the economy. So what are the hot button questions or issues, bottom line here, that are recurring on these projects across the state, Dave? Sure. So there are, there are several issues that we're, we're hearing and seeing and advising uh, clients on, but there are certainly some themes. And there, there are three areas in particular that stand out. The first and the biggest is what we call force majeure. And that's not unique to construction. The term force majeure is, is actually derives from French. It means superior force. And in contract law, in construction and otherwise, force majeure is generally deemed to be a, an incident occurs, something occurs that's a superior force, an act of God or what have you, that when that occurs, it excuses contract performance. In other words, that wasn't foreseen by, the, by either party. And because this has happened, um, now I don't have to perform my contract obligation. In construction, most construction contracts contain a force majeure clause, whether it's called that or not. Essentially, what these clauses say is if the project gets delayed for reasons outside of our control, and I'm speaking from the perspective of the general contractor now, if the project is delayed for reasons outside of the general contractor's control, we get more time. That's excused, right? You're not going to hold us to the original completion dates. If we're supposed to finish June 1 and a pandemic occurs in March and April, that date is, you're going to allow us to move that date out to a time that's determined, right? Right. Um, right. So, and the language, the particular language can be 
really variable. It depends. Sometimes it actually lists out the causes that will grant this type of relief, whether it says force majeure, act of God, adverse weather, labor disputes. Sometimes there's a catch-all phrase that says something along the lines of, or other factors outside of the contractor's control. And the general gist of this is that you get more time when this occurs. Right. Where, where the rubber hits the road is the question of more money and, where, and the question of damages. So um, sometimes it's clear in a contract, and, and oftentimes it's not. And the contracts really run sophisticated construction contracts, and really all construction contracts run the gamut as far as how you see damages for delay treated. Sometimes they're expressly prohibited. Sometimes they're allowed. But that's going to be really where the, unfortunately, you know, ho- hopefully not, we won't see a lot of infighting. But where, the, where it's going to happen, that's going to be a good source of it. And one of the things we're starting to see is our, with our contractors, and, and one of the, you know, the advice we're giving is, look, we know there are going to be impacts. We know that the contracts are going to read a little bit differently across the board, and there's going to be fights, and there's going to be nuanced differences. You've got to document all your costs. You, you absolutely have to document all your costs, because if you don't, if you're not very careful and meticulous about documenting them now, you're dead in the water. You're not going to succeed on any of these claims right. if, if, right. and, if and when they happen. Right? I mean, that's just an initial stepping stone that you need to check that box and have all of your costs documented. Where I'm starting to see a little bit of back and forth between owners and contractors is how those costs are characterized. So some contracts prohibit what we call delay damages, which would be extended supervision time, extended costs to, to manage the project, additional what we call soft costs, right, insurance and so forth. Sometimes those are prohibited, but a lot of contractors are already starting to get creative as far as how they characterize the cost they're incurring. Well, these aren't really delay costs. They're extra costs to adhere to the safety protocols. We have to pay for wash stations. We have to pay for an additional consultant. We have to pay for this and pay for that. So this I all under this umbrella of force majeure, um, that's really one of that. That's probably the singular biggest hot button issue that we're seeing as far as contract attention, contract review, folks starting to posture a little bit, but hopefully working together on that. The second area that we're seeing has to do with the idea of and notion of suspension and termination. If you decide, we touched on this earlier, but if an owner wants to suspend or a contractor can't get their labor, who in the first instance has the power to suspend a project? Who has the power to terminate the work? What are the grounds that you have to be able to do that? And does it make sense? From an owner's standpoint, if they're shut down, if they have a project ongoing in Boston, does it make sense to issue a formal notice to their general contractor saying, due to order such and such, we're now suspending the work? Or do you sit back and wait for the notice to come from your general contractor that says, due to the order of the city of Boston, we are suspending, we consider this a force majeure. From an owner standpoint, you may be better off waiting for that plea to come from the contractor as opposed to initiating it yourself. So we're seeing a lot of questions come in as far as do we suspend, do we terminate, and if we do, what are the grounds and what are the entitlements going to be for the parties? So force majeure one, suspension and termination two, and then the third hot button issue we're starting to get a lot of questions about is insurance and insurance ramifications and how is insurance going to come into play and do we have coverage for this? Do we have coverage for this? You know, that's a question we get a lot. And really there it's threefold. So the first question we're getting is, if I send my employee and he gets sick, can I be sued? And that's really a question of 
general liability? And the, the short answer is you can always be sued, uh, and you may be sued. But these, these are going to be probably covered claims. This is why you have general liability insurance. And they're probably going to be defensible claims, right? I mean, you're, you can defend that you were following the guidelines. How can you prove that you contracted the virus while you were on our site and so forth? So those are sort of the first prong of questions on insurance. The other question we're getting is workers' comp. If our workers get sick on site, is this going to be a, a, a comp type claim? And the answer to that is they're probably not going to be covered, There's, although it's not entirely clear, but there's some older cases involving TB, tuberculosis, that was contracted at a workplace, a construction workplace, and that was deemed to be not covered. But that's certainly an area where folks are, are concerned. The big one is whether there's going to be business interruption coverage. Businesses essentially and rightfully so, as you can understand, are looking for any outlet that might be able to cover some of their lost profit, right, and lost revenue and lost profits that they're incurring. So a natural place to look is their business interruption. Unfortunately, and again, this is a broad topic that's being discussed sort of across the board in the construction industry, business interruption insurance is a property insurance coverage. You need property damage in order to get coverage. And usually affixed to this policy, there's going to be actual property that's listed in a schedule. And your office, your furniture, your whatever have you is going to be listed in that policy. And these projects, these separate projects that the contractors are working on are usually not listed there. So you're going to have some issues. And you're also going to have exclusions in a lot of these policies for losses caused by virus. So it's going to be an uphill battle to get coverage, insurance coverage, for your business loss incurred as a result of the virus impact. One other point is that there is currently a bill pending in the Massachusetts legislature that would effectively rewrite these policies. And I think this is pretty fascinating. I'm not sure how far it will get. What they're trying to do is is pass a law that would rewrite these policies to require coverage for business income loss in this circumstance. And it would be funded by the government. So what what they're trying to do is look, the government will pay for these losses to get these businesses reimbursed some of their business losses, right? We'll pay for it. But you, the insurance companies, are going to accept the claim and and handle the administrative side of it. You're going to be the, the front line of handling these claims, processing them, so forth. But we, the government, will reimburse you through a grant program or what have you. Now, I don't know if that's been proposed. I'm not sure. I don't know that it's going to get anywhere, but that's some of the legislatures in the Commonwealth thinking outside the box. So those are three of the hot button issues. Obviously, there are several of them, and every project is different, but but the force majeure, suspension, termination, and insurance are front of mind. What really interests me, really caught me, was that the legislature is thinking of making some of these business interruption insurance policies different and rewritten and subsidized in some ways. That's mind-blowing, I think. It is. Again, I caution, I'm not sure how far that's going to get in that process. It's certainly thinking outside of the box, and it would be helpful, certainly, for private industry if a law like that were to be put in effect. But it's a long way from that point right now. Absolutely. I can imagine. The wrap-up question I would have, uh, Dave, and thank you so much for giving us uh, some great information about, as I say, a topic that really affects so many folks in Massachusetts and everywhere right now. What are some best practice pointers for project owners and contractors? Sure, there are certainly a few. First, safety has to be paramount. Safety and health of workers and all project participants really is front of mind for everybody in the construction industry, as with 
most industries at this point, construction is no different. As far as impacts to schedule and impacts to cost, they are going to come. Things are going to be late and things are going to be more expensive. The key to a lot of this is going to be carefully keeping track of what those impacts are, identifying specific, uh, particularly on the, on the CM or GC side and on the trade subcontractor side, what are your increased costs? What are they related to? What's the impact? What's the particular impact? What's the impact to the schedule? Again, if you don't track this carefully, uh, it's going to really hinder your ability to collect on it later on, no matter how this plays out. The other piece of advice and and practice pointer is to send notices early and often. Send them now, send them tomorrow, send them next week. Send the notices early and often. Every contract's a little bit different, but you don't want to be in a position where if things go really badly with your other project participants and you're in an adverse claims situation, you're facing not only an uphill battle on proof, but also the fact that you didn't comply with a two-day or three-day or five-day notice requirement or you didn't send notice by certified mail like it says in your contract. So review those requirements, comply with them, and err on the side of caution. Send notices early and often. Dovetailing on that, review your contracts. Know what your force majeure provision says. If you don't have one, you need to know that. Know what your entitlements are. Know what your suspension language says. Know what your contracts say. If you don't like it, it's probably too late to fix them for ongoing work, but you can certainly fix that going forward. And then the last practice pointer would be this notion of cooperation, collaboration, transparency. I mean, all all the oars in the boat need to be rowing in the same direction in order for a lot of these projects to have a chance. This is impacting everybody. So what we're certainly advising folks and what we're seeing more often than not is that everyone's in this together. And the more transparency, the more collaboration, the better project teams need to be meeting either daily or every other day or twice a week or whenever it makes sense and figuring out how best to proceed in light of difficult circumstances. Great way to end here. Thanks, Dave. Uh, Today's guest on On Air with Myrick O'Connell has been attorney and partner David Fine. We've been talking construction here. I really appreciate your taking the time to appear with us today, Dave. How can folks contact you? Sure. You can contact me uh, either by email at dfine at myrickoconnell.com or through uh, my direct office line, which is 508-768-0735. Thanks again for having me, Howard. Thank you, Dave. And you can learn how Dave and his colleagues at Myrick O'Connell can assist you with your business and personal legal needs, as you just heard, by visiting myrickoconnell.com. I'm Howard Kaplan. On behalf of Myrick O'Connell and attorney David Fine, thanks for joining us. Take care and stay safe. This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Myrick O'Connell. It is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest. It is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. This podcast may be considered advertising under the rules of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. 